Uh, first up, kicking off the conference, is our um, Lord Aberdeer keynote. Um, so I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Heather Dichter um, from uh, De Montfort University. Um, she won the Lord Aberdeer Literary Prize last year. Um, I first met Heather many years ago um, at a History of Education conference, in fact, in Glasgow. Uh, when I, It was um, my first year of my PhD. I was a very nervous young PhD student and Heather bounced up to me with all of her usual enthusiasm and said hello and introduced herself um, and <laughs> now she tends to berate me for um, not spending enough time with her when I go to watch cricket in Leicester. Um, so it's lovely to have you here Heather to give um, this Aberdeer Prize lecture. Um, Heather's an associate professor um, at, um, in the International Centre for Sport History and Culture at De Montfort University um, and her work focuses on sport and diplomacy. Um, she's the winner of numerous prizes and awards um, including the Ishpes Award in 20, 2019 I believe um, and her edited book Soccer, Diplomacy, um, International Relations and Football since um, 1914 <laughs> was shortlisted um, for the Telegraph um, Book of the Year in 2021. So, that was a wonderful achievement. Um, and even in a year when the Aberdeer shortlist was an exceptional one last year, I mean, it usually is an exceptional shortlist, um, it was certainly no surprise when Heather was awarded um, the Lord Aberdeer Prize for her book, Bidding for the 1968 Olympic Games, um, International Sports Cold War Battle with NATO. And I'm currently waving the book. Um, and Heather is going to talk to you about how you can buy the book uh, during her presentation. I'm just going to read what the judges said about the book before I invite Heather to come up. Um, in bidding for the 1968 Olympic Games, um, Heather focuses on the lead up to and decision making about the hosts of the 1968 Olympics, opening up important questions of the relationships between and among international bodies, both governmental and non-governmental, while exposing an overlap of military and cultural power. The book raises questions about the cultural power and significance of sport as an institution and as institutionalised and is an impressive exploration of the ways middle power states, here Canada and Norway, worked within a multilateral organisation to assert and amplify their own power and position. The value and significance of approaching established records from new angles is amply demonstrated, resulting in an excellent example of the way a single incident tells a much bigger story. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what Heather has to say in today's keynote. Please come up. Thank you, Raph. Um, and first, I, want, I do want to thank uh, Bish for honoring my book um, with the Lord Aberdare Literary Prize, um, and especially last year's prize committee, uh, Malcolm McLean, Sue Naha, and Imogen Gibbon. Um, and as Raph said, uh, my publisher, the University of Massachusetts, has kindly offered a discount to Bish through the end of September. This is through their European distributor. Um, Britain still considered Europe in, in their sense, um, so please feel free to note this if you haven't yet uh, purchased my book. Raph read what the um, committee kindly wrote about my book, um, and I want to pick up on one aspect that I asserted in my book about the cultural power, one of the points that the last year's committee raised, um, and the significance of sport, and expand on that today. Although my book is framed around the bidding for the 1968 Summer and Winter Olympic Games, I address several European and World Championships 
in the early 1960s within it when they too were impacted by the German problem. Several events saw the Eastern European communist states withdrawing from events held in NATO member states when those countries would not permit East German national teams from entering their country to compete. The first events seriously impacted by these actions were the 1962 World Championships in ice hockey in Colorado Springs, Colorado, USA, and in alpine skiing in Chamonix, France. As NATO member states, the United States and France maintained the organization's travel restrictions on East Germans, including athletes competing as the German Democratic Republic, as the national team athletes. The other Soviet bloc states decided to withdraw their teams from these events in solidarity with their East German compatriots, but in both instances, they decided to wait until shortly before the events began to withdraw their athletes to inflict maximum damage. For the skiing world championships, the athletes were already in France, but then left, whereas for ice hockey, the announcement came less than three weeks before the tournament began. The ice hockey organizers had to then revise the tournament groups from three down to two and completely change the schedule of games because the Soviet, Czechoslovakian, Romanian, Yugoslavian, and East German teams were no longer competing. <coughs> In the Alpine Skiing World Championships, the list of competitors was smaller, but the departure of the Soviet, Czechoslovak, Polish, and Yugoslavian skiers did not really alter the competition much as none of those athletes were medal favorites. While the sport competition was still exciting at both world championships, these events did not achieve all of the prestige that the organizers had anticipated as a result of the extensive global media coverage of the politically motivated boycotts. The Times of London, as you see here, reported that the communist bloc boycott of the 1962 Alpine Skiing World Championships frustrated the hoteliers and shopkeepers who had regarded the award of the 1962 championships as a rich prize for the resort. The New York Times foreign correspondent wrote, the spirit has gone out of the town and also out of many persons who had planned to come here. Some hotels are half empty and crowds at the event so far have been sparse. Taxi drivers are not getting fares. Everyone, except perhaps some of the racers, is deflated. And the French organizers had hoped that hosting this international sporting event would benefit the town financially and attract future tourists after seeing a well-run event in a beautiful location with excellent skiing conditions, either through the news coverage or through the film made of the event, as you see here. But instead, newspapers, stories, newspaper stories across the skiing world in the days leading up to the event focused on the communist bloc boycott and the International Ski Federation's subsequent removal of the World Championship designation to the event. The event continued as planned, and the International Federation actually returned the World Championship moniker, but as the American Vice President of the International Ski Federation lamented, the first announcement of the cancellation of the World Ski Championships received worldwide attention, and the later reversal of this stand received comparatively little attention in the press. People across the world, therefore, read far more about the problems of international politics that they brought to this event, including fewer competitors and tourists, and for a few days at least, the fact that this was not even the world championships anymore. The newspaper coverage on the whole focused on the political problems surrounding the event, 
and the French government felt that this media coverage had damaged international public opinion of the country. Now in my book, I call this the backfiring of soft power, and I noted that, quote, instead of basking in the glory of organizing a successful international sporting event, depleted or relocated events led to little or no economic gains for local business and tourism, alongside extensive criticism of the government and NATO in the domestic and international press. And it is this idea, organizing a sporting event in part for soft power gains, but which ultimately go awry and damage views of the country that I want to expand upon today. My book was released, was released in October 2021, and less than four months later, I was, ex I was speaking to the, about this idea frequently in the media about the 2022 Olympic Winter Games in Beijing. And the media kept asking, will a boycott be successful? But as we all know, it is difficult to measure the success of sport mega events because so many of the goals are unquantifiable. The economic impact is one of the few aspects for which there are hard numbers, although the numbers themselves, um, sometimes used, are called into question or include significant amounts of infrastructure projects, such as airport expansions or highway construction that do not directly relate to the cost of organizing a sporting event itself, but do constitute an enormous financial expenditure. Many of the goals fall into the category of long-term legacies, which cannot be assessed for several years after the event ends. And soft power is difficult in general to measure, as are the benefits from hosting a sport mega event. And in many instances, not just the 1962 World Championships or the 2022 Winter Olympic Games, global politics have weakened the soft power benefits which the host country had hoped to gain from hosting a major sporting event. A diminished competitive field from countries boycotting an event or extensive negative media coverage of the host country can both contribute to the diminished public diplomacy benefits. And the concept of a diplomatic boycott arose in the 2010s with countries wanting, uh, not wanting to deny their athletes the sporting opportunity, but wanting to public, publicly punish the host country. Now, one of the hallmarks of sport mega events is the extensive global media coverage. From print media, through radio, television, internet streaming, and social media, the Olympic Games and other mega events accredit thousands of members of the media who produce vast and rich pieces on the event, athletes, and host country. The 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro, our last big summer um, Olympics before the pandemic, um, had over 25,000 accredited members of the media covering the event, with more than 356,000 hours of global broadcast across television and digital platforms. The extensive media coverage is appealing to local and national politicians and business leaders, as these sport mega events provide a global platform to present an image to an international audience. The opening ceremony in particular allows a host country to present a specific image of itself to the world, with the content often focusing on the culture and heritage of that region, hoping to inspire future tourism. And yet, the same high-profile nature of these events can also bring greater scrutiny about issues which can instead draw negative attention or cause problems for the host um, country and organizers. 
Media growth throughout the 20th century, and especially the proliferation of our 24-7 uh, media coverage today, has meant that foreign concerns about host country's policies can result in extensive negative media coverage of the host country, which is the opposite of the soft power gains which governments hope hosting sport mega events will achieve. When global politics significantly impact a sport mega event, what results is the backfiring of soft power, and the discussion of these incidents needs to be more nuanced rather than simply framed in terms of success. Now to illustrate this idea, I'll trace the history of boycott movements through the more recent development of diplomatic boycotts, including the primarily negative media coverage of these events. Boycotts of sporting events are largely undertaken for one of two reasons. In response to the actions of the host country, or in protest of another country's participation in the event. Regardless of the reason for countries choosing not to participate in a sporting event, and whether it was the government or the national sport governing body that made the decision not to attend, rarely has the lack of sport participation resulted in political change. The idea of boycotting a sporting event has been part of the international sporting landscape for nearly a century. By the 1920s, some governments had started to take sport seriously within their official foreign relations. Once sport factored into their broader considerations, it is not surprising then that the idea of a sporting boycott arose. And I want to talk about some of these boycott movements and their varying nature, although this list um, of the, the boycotts I'll talk about today is by no means comprehensive. Now the first real calls to boycott a sporting event came with the 1936 Olympic Games held in Nazi Germany. When the International Olympic Committee awarded the Games in 1931, the country was still the democratic Weimar Republic. Adolf Hitler at first was not interested in the Olympics, but after his propaganda minister convinced him of their value in showing the world the changes that had taken place in Germany since the Nazi party had come to power, Hitler then fully supported the Olympic preparations. Movements to boycott the 1936 Olympics grew in several countries, but was strongest in the United States, and especially in 1935, after the Nuremberg Laws placed severe restrictions on Jews in Germany, and the regime closed religiously organized independent sport organizations. Editorials advocating not sending teams to Germany came strongest from the Jewish press, but also appeared in regular daily newspapers. The international movement to boycott the 1936 Olympic Games because of the treatment of Germany's Jewish population ended when the United States Olympic Association ultimately decided to send its teams to the Games. The overall boycott movement failed, although a few individual athletes chose not to compete in the 1936 Olympics. The German organizers removed the No Jews Allowed signs as soon as the IOC president saw them and Garmisch Partenkirchen at the Winter Games. But then the games ran smoothly in Garmisch-Partenkirchen and in Berlin in the summer, um, although foreign opinion of the Third Reich did not overwhelmingly change as a result of hosting the Olympics. Now the first time entire countries did not send their athletes to the Olympic Games for political reasons was the 1956 Melbourne Olympics, but not because of any Australian actions. The countries that boycotted these games did so over other states' political actions. Just a few weeks before the Olympics opened, the Soviet Union sent tanks into Budapest to crush the Hungarian Revolution. 
Some European states threatened to boycott over the Soviet Union's actions. The Dutch Olympic Committee recalled their athletes who had already arrived in Australia. The Swiss Olympic Committee wanted its national sport federations to make a unanimous decision regarding attended, but they could not come to a consensus as to whether to participate. They received a lot of domestic criticism for that decision or lack of a decision, um, and then they decided to reverse course and actually send their team, but by that point, it was far too late to actually get a team from Switzerland to Australia because this was not the era of just hop on a plane and get there in a day. Um, Spain also decided not to participate. And similarly, the Suez crisis prompted Egypt, Iraq, and Lebanon not to participate in the Melbourne Olympics. But these decisions not to compete in Melbourne did not change Soviet actions towards Hungary, nor did it factor into the ultimate resolution of the Suez crisis the following year. Now earlier I mentioned the 1962 Alpine Skiing and Ice Hockey World Championships. While the organizers of both of these events scrambled to overcome the last minute challenges when the Eastern European teams withdrew, these actions reverberated throughout the international sports world. The Soviet bloc-led boycotts of these two world championships prompted international federations to move upcoming events from NATO member states to neutral or communist bloc states. Weightlifting moved its 1962 world championships from Hershey, Pennsylvania, USA, really close to where I grew up, all the way to Budapest, Hungary. Anticipated withdrawals from Archery's 1963 World Championships here in England um, resulted in that event being moved to neutral Finland. These Eastern European boycotts of sporting events in protest of East German teams not being allowed to travel to countries to compete prompted international sport to reconsider where they would allocate events, including the 1968 Summer and Winter Olympic Games. Now the boycott with the biggest political impact was the African boycott of the Montreal Olympic Games. When Montreal hosted the 1976 Olympics, Summer Olympics, the event was among a concerted effort on the part of successive governments to exert a greater place for the country within the international system. Under Prime Minister John Diefenbaker from the Progressive Conservative Party, um, he was Prime Minister from 1957 to 1963, the government established a policy of trying to bring international events to Canada, including the Pan American Games, the Olympic Winter Games, and the World's Fair. This policy continued under successive um, liberal prime ministers, Lester B. Pearson from 1963 to 1968, and Pierre Trudeau from 1968 to 1970, the period when Montreal bid for and won the 1976 Summer Olympics. Instead of being an event which promoted Canada on a global, global scale, labor disputes delayed venue construction and increased costs, followed by a boycott as the games began, both of which the media covered extensively. By 1976, the International Sport Federations on the Olympic program had excluded South Africa because of its apartheid policies, but rugby did not. New Zealand's 1976 rugby tour of South Africa prompted other African states to demand New Zealand be excluded from the Montreal Olympics because the country had willingly sent its athletes to compete in a country which had been excluded from sport. 
The IOC refused to uninvite New Zealand because rugby was not part of the Olympic movement. In response, the Olympic teams from approximately 20 African states, along with Iraq and Guyana, abruptly left Montreal just days before the Games opened. This undesirable coverage of Montreal's poor organization and the impact of the boycott led to negative stories for decades as the city took 30 years to repay the debt incurred from constructing the stadium for the 1976 Olympics. With Canada hosting the 1978 Commonwealth Games, the country did not want to be embarrassed a second time in just two years, and the non-participation of African states at the Commonwealth Games would decimate the event. At the 1977 Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, the political leaders signed the Glen Eagles Agreement, which committed them, quote, vigorously to combat the evil of apartheid by withholding any form of support for and by taking every practical step to discourage contact or competition by their nationals with supporting organizations, teams, or sportsmen from South Africa or any other country where sports are organized on the basis of race, color, or ethnic origin, end quote. After only two African states competed in Montreal, the threat of an all-white Commonwealth Games contributed to politicians' greater concern for and actions regarding sport. One of the few times a sport boycott resulted in political action, albeit a year or so later. Now, the Soviet Union had planned then to welcome the world to Moscow for the 1980 Olympics as a demonstration of the country as a world power and as a leader of the communist world. In response to the Soviet Union's invasion of Afghanistan in late 1979, American President Jimmy Carter, without consulting the United States Olympic Committee or other sport leaders, threatened to boycott the Moscow Olympics if the Soviet Union did not remove troops from Afghanistan. The Soviet Union did not comply with the American threats, and Carter carried out the boycott. In the end, 60 countries did not send athletes to Moscow, but many of the United States' allies did, with um, a lot of those countries competing under the name of their National Olympic Committee. And although they didn't use their national flags, the presence of athletes from these countries significantly reduced the impact of Carter's boycott, as historian Jennifer Parks has noted. Now, the Soviet Union had hoped that the 1980 Olympics would showcase the country to the world and demonstrate its strength. Instead, the media focused on the boycott, countries not attending, and the resulting problems. Toronto's Globe and Mail called the quality of the Moscow Olympics watered down a month before the Games even opened because more than 50 countries had decided not to attend. Britain's The Guardian questioned how good would Olympic winners in Moscow actually be? The value of an Olympic medal in Moscow will take some time to emerge, but there will be worthy champions in these boycott games who will spend the rest of their lives trying to convince people of their worthiness because so many of the top medal-winning countries would not be competing. Just like some of the world championships from the 1960s, the depleted field of competitors in Moscow left the event with less prestige than organizers and political leaders expected. For the African athletes, whose countries boycotted both the Montreal and Moscow Olympics, the media highlighted the detrimental impact international politics had on the athletes. Just six days before the Moscow Games opened, the New York Times published on the first page of the sports section an article titled, 
for Africans, yet another year of Olympic sacrifice. Kenyan runner Henry Rono held four world records and had won two gold medals at the 1978 All-Africa Games and another two at the 1978 Commonwealth Games after having missed the 1976 Olympics. Yet, as the New York Times noted, instead of being a hero of black Africa's emerging sports prowess, he symbolizes personal and painful athletic sacrifices that stem from political decisions by his country's leaders. The media coverage made clear that the boycott hurt the athletes, prevented from competing, and along with the organizational challenges, damaged the public perception of the host city, in the case of Montreal, or host country for the Soviet Union. For both the Montreal and Moscow Olympics, the media noted the economic losses sustained from the boycotts. Five days in the Montreal, into the Montreal Olympics, the Guardian was, quote, counting the financial cost of the boycott and noting that it isn't just the prestige and entertainment, no Walker Bay, no race of the decade lost through the African boycott and the waste of effort in training and planning that is concerning Montreal, but also the loss of hard cash. With 700 athletes missing, programs have been rearranged and sessions canceled, notably in soccer, basketball, volleyball, boxing, and hockey. Organizers had already refunded 150,000 pounds in tickets, and with the lost revenue to concessionaires and from athletes not staying in the Olympic Village, they had estimated Montreal having lost 500,000 pounds. With the Western boycott of the 1980 Games announced months in advance, the Moscow organizers faced a lack of tourists and a lack of ticket sales. <laughs> The Soviet Union had expected 300,000 foreign tourists, but a month before the Olympics opened, the organizers stated that they anticipated 75,000 foreign tourists, one quarter of the original expectation. The um, organizers had also planned for 30,000 American tourists, but with the US-led boycott, that number decreased to only 10%, just 3,000 American tourists at the games. <coughs> Class action lawsuits sought refunds for ticket package purchasers and nearly bankrupted the American travel provider. Travel agencies in Britain, France, and Switzerland all had customers cancel their Olympic travel packages. The official Canadian ticket and tour operator lost over $2.5 million because Canada boycotted the 1980 Games and could not reclaim the money it had paid out for tickets unless the Soviet Union canceled or postponed the Games. The drop in foreign tourists from Western states meant that the Soviet Union also saw a decrease in hard currency income. And included within President Carter's boycott of the Moscow Olympics was also the denial of all licenses for US goods and technology to be used in support of the Olympic Games in Moscow. So this decision affected $20 million worth of goods, including over 13,000 pairs of Levi's jeans intended for the Moscow Games personnel. Not sure what the volunteers all wore on their pants instead. Um, clearly, it was not Levi's jeans. The boycott of the Moscow Olympics thus left numerous businesses without the financial windfall they had planned from being associated with the Games. Western television networks and companies working with the Olympics also lost money. US broadcaster NBC, which at the time was last in both ratings and profits of the three American networks, had the contract for the Moscow Olympics. 
and NBC thought this was going to, to change their, their ranking as last. They anticipated a significant ratings boost and about a 20 to $30 million profit from 150 hours of planned Olympic coverage. The network had already paid $61 million, which um, that could not be recovered as long as the Olympics still took place. And they still owed another $87 million, which NBC was really hoping neither um, the IOC or the Moscow organizers would actually demand them to pay if NBC wasn't actually covering the games. With the boycott, NBC then anticipated a net loss of $30 million instead of that profit of 20 to 30 million. Similarly, in Canada, um, broadcaster CBC anticipated losing $5.2 million. And aside from not receiving all of these payments expected for broadcast rights coming into the Soviet Union, the country also missed the millions of international viewers being captivated by the host country on their televisions without these networks broadcasting the games. Now, the reciprocal boycott of the Los Angeles Olympics four years later by almost the entire communist bloc had no real political reasons other than to embarrass the United States for having organized the boycott of the Moscow Games. This boycott of the 1984 Summer Olympics by all of the Eastern European communist states except Romania only made those states look petty as Los Angeles Olympics were a commercial success, transforming the Olympic sponsorship and making the Olympics a desirable event to hold. Three consecutive boycotts, though, concerned the International Olympic Committee, who worked to ensure that international politics did not disrupt the Olympics in 1988 and into the 21st century. North Korea's non-participation in Seoul, South Korea in 1988 um, didn't really have much of an impact. But more recent calls to boycott the Olympic Games have not been because of international politics, but have instead been framed as necessary acts to protest specific domestic policies of the host country. Prior to the 2014 Olympic Winter Games in Sochi, Russia, activists called for a boycott of the Games over recently introduced anti-LGBTQ laws, but none of these calls were taken seriously by any National Olympic Committee or government. However, the United States, United Kingdom, France, and Germany all chose not to send their political leaders to Sochi. President Barack Obama selected three openly gay individuals, tennis legend Billie Jean King, ice hockey player Caitlin Cahill, and figure skater Brian Boitano to lead the US delegations at the opening and closing ceremonies. Typically, the presence of heads of state at the Olympic opening ceremonies is an opportunity for public diplomacy, allowing the head of state of the host country to demonstrate the importance of their state to the world. At Sochi, the lack of the US president and a focus on three prominent LGBTQ plus individuals from sport was a clear statement from President Obama about the importance of equality and freedom for individuals regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity. Similarly, the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi fit into Vladimir Putin's plans for Russia. As scholar Susan Tenorello has noted, the Olympics provided Putin with a public relations offensive to exploit existing social fissures, whilst holding Russia into the spotlight as a multipolar global power following Russia's post-Soviet weakened status. 
The opening ceremony focused on Russia's history and Russian contributions, and the closing ceremony emphasized Russia's rich cultural heritage. Jungli has called Sochi's two ceremonies the parade of soft power arsenal that post-communist Russia could deploy in order to make this cult country culturally and technologically more attractive. The carefully crafted ceremonies watched by millions of people live and on tape delay around the world with commentary provided by the organizers but made by national broadcasters allowed Russia to present its own narrative identity to the world. However, the anti-LGBTQ laws introduced in Russia less than a year before the Winter Olympics, combined with the astronomical costs for the Sochi Games and post-Olympic infrastructure disuse, meant that the media coverage of the Sochi Olympics was largely negative. Ultimately, the diplomatic boycott of Sochi showed the limits of Olympic boycotts. Targeted boycotts focused on the host nation, but not athletes, can generate negative publicity but they have little ability to influence the objectionable policy that produced demands for a boycott in the first place. Nonetheless, the lack of high-level Western government representatives attending the Sochi Olympics diminished Russia's plans for the Games to improve its international image. And as political scientist Dmitry Dabrowski noted, the attendance issue was of critical importance. The huge investment in the Games risked being turned into a loss. Like Montreal in 1976, the exorbitant costs to construct the facilities needed for the 2014 Olympic Winter Games in Sochi and their political discussion surrounding Russia left the event with less positive international views of the country. The 2018 FIFA Men's World Cup, also held in Russia, again saw a diplomatic boycott which damaged Russian President Vladimir Putin's desire to show Russia in a positive light on the global stage. In response to the Russian poisoning of a former Russian military officer and his daughter on British soil, the United Kingdom imposed a diplomatic boycott of the World Cup, sending neither politicians nor members of the royal family to the event. This decision came alongside British Prime Minister Theresa May announcing the expulsion of 23 Russian diplomats and the rescinding of an invitation to the Russian Foreign Minister to visit the United Kingdom. FIFA's Men's World Cup is the largest single sport event watched all over the world, but with a limited number of countries actually participating, along with the opening ceremony being a match amongst two countries, between two countries, in contrast to the Olympic opening ceremony where every country participating in the event is paraded into the stadium, a diplomatic boycott of the World Cup is more limited in visibility and impact. The idea of a diplomatic boycott gained more prominence with the 2022 Beijing Olympic Winter Games in response to China's treatment of the Uyghur people, other ethnic and religious groups, and democracy activists in Hong Kong. The United States announced its diplomatic boycott on December 6th, two months before the Beijing Olympics opened. The White House press secretary stated that the United States would not send any government officials to Beijing because of China's egregious human rights abuses and atrocities in Xinjiang. Canada, the United Kingdom, Belgium, Denmark, Estonia, and Australia all announced diplomatic boycotts as well. Several Lithuanian members of parliament called for a total boycott of the Olympics, including by its country's athletes, um, amid increased tensions with China after Lithuania and Taiwan have established greater reciprocal diplomatic representations. 
Ultimately, Lithuania's Education, Science, and Sport Minister announced that athletes would attend while she and other government officials would not. One week before the Olympics began, 243 non-governmental organizations urged other governments to join the diplomatic boycott. Holding the Winter Olympics in Beijing, the director of one of the signatories stated, sends a signal to the world that China's government is normal, but a diplomatic boycott would withhold legitimization of government abuses. Not all government leaders stayed away, and the Chinese president held an official meeting with Vladimir Putin the day before the, 19, or the 2022 Olympic Winter Games began, and additional meetings um, with the political leaders of Kazakhstan, Serbia, and Egypt the following day. Media coverage of the Beijing Olympics highlighted the diplomatic boycott, the lack of international government representatives at the opening ceremony, and Chinese political actions. China had hoped the 2022 Winter Olympics, like the previous 2008 Summer Olympics in Beijing, um, they hoped to use these for positive public diplomacy. American media reported that Chinese diplomats paid a consulting firm based in New Jersey for at least 3.4 million impressions on TikTok, Instagram, and Twitch, highlighting touching moments, positive outcomes, and other sunny Olympic elements. However, traditional media outlets highlighted the controversies which framed the Chinese government negatively. Both the BBC and the New York Times published explainer stories like this one here um, that addressed the many controversies provided links to more detailed stories. Chinese treatment of Uyghurs, over a million of whom had been sent to quote re-education camps, featured extensively in the critical coverage before the Beijing Games opened, including from affiliate television stations of US broadcaster NBC all across the country. While Chinese actions regarding Uyghurs, Tibetans, or Hong Kong were not new in 2022, the extensive global media coverage of these human rights issues because the Olympics were going to Beijing made them more well-known to the average person across the world. Thus, as we have seen, calls for boycotts of the Olympics and other major international sporting events have happened for over 80 years. The nature of the boycotts have moved away from serious considerations of athletes not competing at the Olympic Games to more symbolic diplomatic boycotts. The lack of government officials for major powers attending sport mega events in recent years still allows the athletes their opportunity to compete while preventing a total acceptance of the host country's actions. The media coverage of international sporting events has the power to shape global views of the host country. One of the reasons so many governments have historically, have historically supported the organizing of sport mega events within their borders. Yet, when the politics affect those sporting events, the media coverage contributes to those same public diplomacy plans backfiring. International audiences receive messages focusing on negative aspects, from political policies to wild overspends when constructing sport facilities. Instead of the sporting event making global audiences thinking positively of the host country and wanting to visit there, these events are remembered for their problems and weaker sporting competitions. Considering several sporting events which have, which have confronted boycotts in actuality or just merely the threats of, reveals broader trends than just a localized impact. 
The discussion of these boycotts thus needs to be reframed away from the idea of success. Of course, the effect at the local or regional level and on that sporting event itself financially should not be dismissed or discounted. But taking a broader view with all of these examples demonstrates a more widespread aspect of public diplomacy backfiring when hosting a sport mega event or even a smaller international sporting event. Global media coverage plays a prominent role in trying to convey a positive image of the host country, but it similarly can emphasize when the organization of the event does not go according to plan. Media coverage thus highlights the problems which portray the host country more negatively, diminishing the value of hosting a sporting event for public diplomacy. Big committees frequently tout the benefits of hosting an event and the positive impact it will have, but history reveals just how easily those plans can backfire from politics, either domestic or international. Thank you very much.